History of Westeros welcomes Audible.com as our latest sponsor. I'm particularly excited to have them on board because I've been using them myself for over a decade, and it's nice to have a sponsor that's a product you already use and have loved for a long time. I first used them for my mother. I downloaded the A Song of Ice and Fire series before A Feast for Crows came out and gave them to her back on CD. How about that? Today, uh, you can use History of Westeros to try out a 30-a-day free trial of Audible.com, and I, that comes with one free download. I highly recommend The World of Ice and Fire on audio because Roy Dotrice is a fantastic narrator. Or you can try out The Princess and the Queen, read by none other than Sir Jorah, Ian Glenn himself. That's pretty cool. The King's Hand should be a highborn lord, someone wise and learned, a battle commander, or a great knight. Sir Ryan Redwine was the greatest knight of his day, and one of the worst hands ever to serve a king. Septon Mermison's prayers worked miracles, but his hand he soon had the whole realm praying for his death. Lord Butterwell was renowned for wit, Miles Smallwood for courage, Sir Otto Hightower for learning, yet they failed his hands, every one. As for birth, the Dragon Kings oft chose hands from amongst their own blood, with results as various as Baylor Breakspear and Magor the Cruel. Against this, you have Septon Barth. The blacksmith's son, the old king plucked from the Red Keep's library, who gave the realm 40 years of peace and plenty. Hello and welcome to another episode of History of Westeros podcast, the podcast dedicated to George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire book series, as well as HBO's Game of Thrones. This episode has spoilers for all the books, especially The World of Ice and Fire, as that is the place Septon Barth is mentioned the most. As you can see, there's no Ashea today. We tried to push the episode back a few days because she's been sick, but we didn't want to wait any longer. Uh, the show must go on, as they say, and we're trying to keep on a, a tighter schedule, so we didn't want to keep waiting. So uh, we had to do this episode without her, unfortunately, but she'll be back in the near future. Now, throughout A Song of Ice and Fire, there are several background characters, living or dead, that serve as what we've referred to as Oracle in the past. They have a speci uh, special knowledge of a specific type, as if they each have their own specialty of sort. For example, Patchface, his babbling songs, they're a great example. He'd be in the prophecy and foreshadowing category. He'd probably be in the confusing category, too, if we're being honest. Now, Old Nan is another example. Now, woven in between the lines of her bedtime stories are crucial ancient truths. We can learn about the Others, The Last Hero, Night's King, The Wall, Northern Morality, just to name a few. Now, there are others, like the Dwarf Jester Mushroom, for example. But in today's episode... We're going to talk about one who isn't alive during the series or any of the novellas. He's a part of history, uh, which is our specialty, of course, but his name comes up a lot, especially in the world of Vice and Fire, but in the main books as well. It's easy to miss this, though, because the references are very scattered, they're very subtle, and like George always does, he doesn't give, there's no narrator, there's no who's who guide or anything like that. So it's up to us to dig out these clues and to make the most of them, and I think you guys will be very pleased with this one. Even though the topic looks a bit obscure, and in a way, it kind of is obscure, but it's not obscure in the sense that there's little to it. It's actually what I'd call an obscure topic that's overwhelmingly full of insight into some of the biggest of Song of Ice and Fire mysteries. We don't have time for truly obscure topics, even though we often get really uh, deep into the details. So this is a good time to point out that I'm quite proud of our episode voters who chose this topic. It's the first topic chosen through our episode voting system where listeners help us choose episode topics. It was voted in today uh, over topics like Dark Sister, Summer Hall, and Brendan Blackfish even. So you can learn more about how that all works at patreon.com slash historyofwesteros. And right now there's only, as of March 2015, there's only 10 eligible voters, so a vote can really go a long way. 
You know, we're going to show in this episode why this is a good choice and why I'm proud of our, our listeners for picking it. He is someone to pay really close attention to, Septon Barth, that is, especially if you're going to do any rereads in the future. But also in the future, if he, uh, in the future of the series, he'll probably appear again, he'll probably be referenced again, and it'll be good to be prepared and to know uh, how important this character is, so the reference won't just slide by you. As far as categories, like we said, Old Nan was in the kind of ancient mysteries category, and Patchface is in the babbling prophecy category, if that's a category. Septon Barth's specialty, if, if he had one, because he seemed to be good at a lot of things, but the area he really stands out is in the higher mysteries, in magic. Already start to see why this topic is so juicy. If he were a maester, he'd have the biggest Valyrian steel link you could imagine. It would it would it would give him back problems. It would be so heavy. But he wasn't a maester, so he wore no chain. In fact, throughout this episode, you'll see in a few spots where he kind of kind of makes the maesters look bad, actually, um, and that's kind of funny. But the man, this is because the man just knew much and more of ravens, dragons, old Valyria, and even the uh, screwy Westerosi seasons. In another light, he's like that annoying friend, the one that almost all of us seem to have, the one who kind of seems to know everything, the one who always wins at trivia, the kind who's right, even those times when you're like really sure that this is the time, I, f I finally got them, I, f I finally got the answer that they don't know. But no, they, they know that one too. So this is especially true here because Septon Barth is kind of, as much as he is an illuminator, he's also a little bit of a party pooper because he, as much as he can illuminate and bring out some of our favorite theories, he can also crush some of them because his knowledge is just so strong. Before we get too deep into this, though, I want to do a quick shout-out to the artists in general, the Song of Ice and Fire artist community. They bring a lot to the table. They put a lot of work into making a Song of Ice and Fire more visual, more realistic, more something that we can put into our minds, more imaginative. So big, big thanks to all the artists who make a Song of Ice and Fire a better experience for all of us, and to... Along those lines, also wanted to give a shout out to some particular people who have also supported the artists and as well as the History of Westeros podcast. In particular, I want to thank the A Song of Ice and Fire Facebook community. There is a very large, there's a lot of different Facebook groups that talk about A Song of Ice and Fire, but today I'm speaking of the big group. It has over 40,000 members recently. So thank you in particular to Kristen and Kelly and Deanna and Joseph and Christy and Stevie and Mathino, and Robert, and Peter, and Geddes, and anyone I missed, hopefully I said those names reasonably close to right, a dragon egg for each of you. Part one, who is Septon Barth? Well, we have a great quote to explain that. He was the son of a common blacksmith and had been given to the faith while young, but his brilliance made itself known, and in time he came to serve in the library at the Red Keep, tending the king's books and records. There, King Jaehaerys became acquainted with him. So, Jaehaerys I somehow came to know a Septon whose job was book and record keeping. Normally, this is not the type of person that a king has any sort of dealing with at all, let alone the kind of becoming a friend or like an intimate uh, you know, connection with somebody like that. That's, uh, that's very unusual. This either speaks to Jaehaerys himself as kind of a different kind of king, more of a progressive mind, but it also speaks to how ridiculously intelligent Barth himself was. But Jaehaerys wasn't simply a fan of Barth's skills, quote, Yet if Alisande was Jaehaerys' great love, his greatest friend was Septon Barth. No man of humble birth ever rose so high as the plain-spoken but brilliant Septon. Rise so high indeed, as Jaehaerys, quote, soon named him Hand of the King. Many lords of great lineage looked askance at this, and the high Septon and most devout were said to be even more concerned over questions of his orthodoxy. But Barth more than proved himself. Now that's a wonderful parallel right here. 
Uh, the quote we opened the episode with was Barth's first mention, but more importantly, it came from Davos and Stannis. It's when Davos was named Hand of the King himself. Now, who better than Davos represents to us fans the idea of rising from lowborn to hit high places through merit. And of course, Stannis runs one of the most merit-based organizations, so having someone rise high that started low isn't a big surprise with someone like Stannis. But in other cases, it is. So both Davos and Stannis, or rather both Davos and Septon Barth, made the, made the, uh, the rank of Hand of the King. And I like to think that Davos's unwavering, honest devotion are kind of a nice similarity to Barth's unwavering devotion to knowledge. Truth and knowledge, in a sense, is very similar to the kind of honesty we're going, talking about here. Of course, it remains to be seen how well Davos's tenure is Stannis's hand goes. I, I'm not sure he'll last 40 years. Um, <laughs> that may be a bit far ahead. I, I also don't think A Song of Ice and Fire will, will look forward 40 years, so it kind of uh, goes without saying there. But beginning circa... 59 AC, Barth was hand for 40 years. Probably the best 40 years the realm has ever seen. But let's revert, let's revisit that quote I just read a minute ago. It's kind of curious. Now, I can understand, as I'm sure you all can, ancient blooded nobles, these, these old families that are really proud of their lineage, that always think that the higher born blood you know, matters so much. I can understand why they have a problem with Barth being this lowborn guy raised above them. I don't agree with them, but I can understand it because we're so used to that type of thinking. They're so prideful about such things. Again, think about Davos. Think about the kind of experiences Davos goes through as being elevated above certain people. They just, they can hardly believe it. They, they just, they just kind of tolerate it because they have to, but their prejudice shows quite often. But in this case, we have the actual High Septon and the, 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 the order of the most devout, which are the, those people who are the highest ranking amongst the faith. They had a problem with Septon Barth becoming Hand of the King, which is interesting because he's supposedly one of their own. But he is lower ranking than them. He's just a, you know, just a Septon. So on one hand, it's the same kind of low guy being raised above kind of situation where pride kind of comes in. But on the other hand, you'd kind of think that they'd be happy to have one of their own so close to the Iron Throne, so close to the king. And in fact, Barth's closeness to the faith may have actually played a critical role in the early reign of the Targaryens. Quote, some say the most important achievement of the rule of Jaehaerys and Septon Barth was a reconciliation with the faith. The poor fellows and warrior sons, no longer hunted as they had been in Magor's day, were much reduced and officially outlawed thanks to Magor, but they were still present and still restless in their eagerness to restore their orders. More pressingly, the face traditional right to judge its own had begun to prove troublesome, and many lords complained of unscrupulous septries and septons making free with the wealth and property of their neighbors and those they preached to. So Barth's ability to straddle multiple disparate worlds was huge in the matter of ending this long, these long wars with the faith. At the same time, uh, he, his ideas were a bit radical. The peaceful approach wasn't shared by many. Here's another quote. Some counselors urged the old king to deal with the remnants of the faith militant harshly, to stamp them out once and for all before their zealotry could return the realm to chaos. Others cared more for ensuring that the Septons were answerable to the same justice as the rest of the realm. Now, Barth, of course, was himself a Septon, as we know, so ostensibly he should be about as devout as anyone, but of course it doesn't actually work out that way. Title doesn't, you know, reflect reality always. But still, he's hand of the king, he's friend to, ha- to Jaehaerys, he's friends with House Targaryen, and back then the faith had huge problems with the Targaryens, so he was like a bridge. The, the chief problems the Targaryen, the, 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 rather, the faith had with the Targaryens was that they were really against incest and polygamy. 
Uh, likewise, the Targaryens had major issues with the faith. Like we said, the big one was the Septons being above the law, but also all this, you know, armed militarized zealots roaming the countryside kind of, uh, you know, not doing the best for the realm there. So there were a lot of, there's a lot of conflict on both sides. And Barth was really the only one who was part of both worlds. He was, you know, it's two worlds at odds that he was helping bring together. King Jaehaerys got his nickname, the Conciliator for the most part because of this particular piece and for the general piece of his realm during his reign. But at, while he deserves a lot of credit for creating this peace between the faith and the crown and the realm in general, where I'm sitting, after having done all this research, it really seems like Barth is the one who deserves the lion's, well, the dragon's share of the credit. Now, Jaehaerys was wise enough not to take the advice of the counselors who wanted to continue the cycle of violence and brutality, uh, the way Magor did it, in other words. But brutality, thankfully, wasn't the method that Jaehaerys and Barth had in mind. Quote, Jaehaerys instead dispatched Septon Barth to Old Town to speak with the High Septon, and there they began to forge a lasting agreement. In return for the last few stars and swords putting down their weapons, and for agreeing to accept outside justice, the High Septon received King Jaehaerys' sworn oath that the Iron Throne would always protect and defend the faith. In this way, the great schism between crown and faith was forever healed. Now, think about how long this was a problem. It really puts in perspective how big of a victory for peace this was. We don't exactly know how long it was a problem. 60 to 65 years, though, is a reasonable range for that guess. During the reigns of Aenys and Magor, the faith were at the height of their rebellionists. There was several wars. The Targaryens were nearly overthrown. And, of course, we all know that Magor you cut the heads off of... So many of the faithful, he offered the, you know, those ransoms for the scalps of, of those people. Now, Aegon, the Conqueror, didn't have those bloody rebellions to deal with, but we are told, quote, the Conqueror himself tread carefully with the faith so that they would not oppose him. Well, if he was not worried about them opposing him, he wouldn't have exactly tread lightly. So clearly they were powerful enough to give him pause and to make, you know, his, his policies something that he had to consider at all times, something that he had to work around. So even... In other words, so even to the man who subdued all of Westeros minus Dorne, the faith were considered extremely powerful. The power the Seven had in Westeros was a big part of why Aegon adopted the faith himself. Remember, during the conquest, he decided to convert to the Seven. Uh, that just goes to show even more how powerful the faith was. Septon Barth and Jaehaerys the Conciliator ended this long period of, of danger and bloodiness and rebelliousness and discord. At last... This big problem was gone, and there was no more need to tread lightly, no more armies of zealots. So this freed up our dynamic duo to focus on improving the realm. Quote, with Barth's aid and advice, King Harry's did more to reform the realm than any other king who lived before or after. Specifically, quote, where his grandsire, King Aegon, had left the laws of the Seven Kingdoms to the vagaries of local tradition and custom, Jaehaerys created the first unified code, so that from the north to the Dornish marches, the realm shared a single rule of law. This was a huge step towards unifying the realm, and Barth seems to deserve some credit. This will come up significantly in the time of Daemon Blackfire, as when Dorne enters the realm through marriage, they are not bound by these codified laws. But that's a story for another time. Additionally, quote, Great works to improve King's Landing were also implemented, drains and sewers and wells especially, for Barth believed that fresh water and the flushing away of offal and waste were important to a city's health. Well, uh, I think we can all agree that that's an extremely important thing, 
And think of all the times that we've heard that King's Landing stinks. Uh, the smell is mentioned by people like Jamie and Davos and Tyrion and other people, especially Northerners who've never been there before. So I wonder if this is another one of Barth's forgotten pieces of wisdom, whether they abandoned the policies of health management and sanitation that he tried to implement. Quote, furthermore, the conciliator began the construction of the great network of roads that would one day join King's Landing to the Reach, the Stormlands, the Westerlands, the Riverlands, and even the North. Understanding that to knit together the realm, it must be easier to travel amongst its regions. The King's Road was greatest of these roads, reaching hundreds of leagues to Castle Black and the Wall. These roads are also hugely important. The mobility gained by merchants, travelers, and armies over the years cannot be understated. It's a massive economic benefit. King Jaehaerys and Septon Barth fought big and long-term, and they succeeded spectacularly on several fronts. Remember that before this, the period of the Iron Throne, which is, you know, at this point, we're only talking about 60, 70 years of existence, all the realms were constantly at war with each other, or at least maintained a bit of uneasiness. These border regions were constant sources of small amounts of fighting, if not all-out wars. So the linking of the realms by roads actually went a long way towards kind of unifying them, making neighbors neighbors rather than neighbors kind of barely tolerant or, in some cases, flat-out enemies. So, Barth wasn't just an expert in the higher mysteries. I mean, really, we haven't even started on that yet. We're, we're about to, but to this point, we've just shown how Barth understands all these non-magical-type you know, mysteries. We've shown that he made peace, roads, and that he understood public health. He was a man of faith and of science, of magic and the mundane, natural and supernatural. He understood psychology, health, economics... The realm was doubly lucky, not only that they had him, but that there was a king with the wisdom to make him his hand. So I have no doubt in my mind that the time of Jaehaerys the Conciliator, in large part due to Septon Barth's handship, was the Iron Throne's golden age. If you were to force through some sort of dimensional time portal and made to live your life in Westeros, but you at least got to choose the when... Choose the late 50s, early 60s AL as your starting point, because that's when the realm was ruled by these benevolent geniuses. Now let's get more specific on Barth's genius here in part two. But first, a reminder that you can support the show through Amazon.com. Go to History of Westeros and click on any of the Amazon links and any shopping you do through Amazon.com. It won't cost you any more than it normally would. We get a little bit of credit. Right now, I would recommend pre-ordering The Night of the Seven Kingdoms, which is a collection of the first three Dunkin' Egg novellas. We've got a link specifically for that, and it's going to have some new artwork in it, which we're really excited about. Another uh, possibility is the 2016 Song of Ice and Fire calendar, which features some great art by Megali Villanueva, who is one of our favorite artists. So check that out while you can. Part 2, Septon Barth versus the Citadel. A particularly conspicuous mark of genius is when you have a person that's consistently right despite people constantly disagreeing with them especially when those people constantly disagreeing are experts themselves. So you have a guy that just is basically head and shoulders above all the experts. They always think he's wrong, but he turns out to be right. So I'm going to prove that to you. So we've gathered together several examples of times when Barth was doubted, called wrong, or even harshly dismissed when he was actually 100% correct. That's why, a big part of why, rather, this character is, is a bit buried between the lines because he's often dismissed as wrong. But we've done the legwork and we've seen that every single time it's either unproven or Septon Barth is totally right. Now, there, like I said, there are several things that 
we don't know yet. They're up in the air still. So the, the chips will fall where they may, and maybe we'll have some examples of him being wrong later. But right now, we just don't have it. So uh, what, what, what I tend to think is that when you have a guy that is right about a lot of things and we have no proof of him being wrong, especially in a book situation like this, I tend to believe him almost every time. So just like you wouldn't bet against that know-it-all trivia friend, you shouldn't bet against Barth here. Here's a perfect example. Though considered disreputable in this, our present day, a fragment of Septon Barth's unnatural history has proved a source of controversy in the halls of the Citadel. Claiming to have consulted with text said to be preserved at Castle Black, Septon Barth put forth that the children of the forest could speak with ravens and could make them repeat their words. According to Barth, this higher mystery was taught to the first men by the children so that ravens could spread messages at a great distance. It was passed in, quote, degraded form down to the maesters today, who no longer know how to speak to the birds. It is true that our order understands the speech of ravens, but this means the basic purposes of their cawing and rasping, their signs of fear and anger, and the means by which they display their readiness to mate or their lack of health. Ravens are amongst the cleverest of birds, but they are no wiser than infant children and considerably less capable of true speech, whatever Septon Barth might have believed. A few maesters devoted to the link of Valyrian steel have argued that Barth was correct, but not a one has been able to prove his claims regarding speech between men and ravens. Note the disdain and bias in that quote. It's all over the place. The guy's just dripping with, almost dripping with contempt for Barth's opinions there. But... We have them completely vindicated and proved true by none other than Bloodraven himself. When Bran asks the fallen question, do all the birds have singers in them? All, Lord Brynden said. It was the singers who taught the first men to send messages by Raven. But in those days, the birds would speak the words. The trees remember, but men forget. And so now they write the passages on parchment and tie them round the feet of birds who have never shared their skin. Now, just to pile on the sources, besides Blood Raven and Septon Barth, we also have, on the same subject of Raven speaking messages out loud, quote, Bran thinking to himself, Old Nan had told him the same story once, Bran remembered. So, we have Old Nan, Septon Barth, and Blood Raven all telling us something. I do believe we should take that, even though the maesters are strongly disagreeing with it. So... Another question we have here, though, one that we've probably all wrestled with when we've all thought about at least a little bit, if not a lot, the seasons. Why are they so inconsistent? What is up with winters that can last over five years or even longer, supposedly generation long in the long night, for example? Now, here we have a quote. Though the Citadel has long sought to learn the manner by which it may predict the length and change of seasons, all efforts have been confounded. Septon Barth appeared to argue in a fragmentary treatise that the inconstancy of the seasons was a matter of magical art rather than trustworthy knowledge. Maester Nichols, The Measure of the Days, otherwise a laudable work containing much of use, seems influenced by this argument. Based upon his work on the movement of stars in the firmament, Nichol argues unconvincingly that the seasons might once have been of a regular length, determined solely by the way in which the globe faces the sun in its heavenly course. The notion behind it seems true enough, that the lengthening and shortening of days, if more regular, would have led to more regular seasons. But he could find no evidence that such was ever the case beyond the most ancient of tales. Well, we found the best evidence possible. George R. R. Martin has said more than once in interviews that the seasons are magical in nature. Boom, there you go. What better source can you possibly have? That's like God coming down and saying something to you. You better believe it. Score another one for Barth as well as this Maester Nickel guy who used Barth as a source. And again, the Maesters look kind of bad in this higher mysteries category. Let's remind us that they 
kind of tend to look bad in this category in general. Uh, going back to early Clash of Kings, we have Maester Lewin saying, quote, this is Valyrian steel, he said, when the link of dark gray metal lay against the apple of his throat. Only one maester in a hundred wears such a link. This signifies that I have studied what the Citadel calls the higher mysteries. Magic, for want of a better word, a fascinating pursuit, but of small use, which is why so few maesters trouble themselves with it. Only one in a hundred. Lewin says, and even Lewin himself, who earned one of those, downplays its value. Of course, like I said, this is a Clash of Kings, so by now in the story, we'd already seen dragons, the others, Melisandre, and more. So even the most casual reader knows that Maester Lewin is dead wrong here. Now, Barth has already shown his influence on us, History of Westeros, in a previous episode. Our thoughts on the Doom of Valyria highly uh, rely on the confidence we've gained in him as a source. So, what are we to make of Barth's thoughts on this, however? Quote, An account by Mar Archmaester Marwyn confirms reports that no man rides in Ashai, be he warrior, merchant, or prince. There are no horses in Ashai, no elephants, no mules, no donkeys, no zorses, no camels, no dogs. Such beasts, when brought there by ship, soon die. The malign influence of the ash and its polluted waters have been implicated, as is well understood from Harmon's On Miasmas, that animals are more sensitive to the foulness exuded by such waters, even without drinking them. Septon Barth's writings speculate more wildly, referring to the higher mysteries with little evidence. All right, first of all, first of all, how cool is a quote that mentions Marwyn the Mage, Septon Barth, and Ashai all together? So that's awesome. So we, you can see why we had to include that quote in this episode. The second, look how weak this masterly argument in here. It's, it's pathetic, really. They're blaming foul water for the problem of no animals living whatsoever in this city. Ash just doesn't buy it. I'm, I'm really surprised that that's their, that's their conclusion. It just doesn't make sense to us. Maybe because we, we modern humans have such a different sense of how health works. I mean, cows being more susceptible to dirty water than humans? Elephants? Horses? Cow I don't think so. The, the, most of these animals, if not all of them, can tolerate dirty water a lot more than humans can. So I think we're going to go with Barth again, despite them is dismissing his little evidence argument. So unfortunately, the maesters don't actually even point out what this argument is. They just say that he made an argument and that it refers to the higher mystery. So we don't even know what his point really is. But I still think he's right, despite not even knowing what he's saying. Now, let's talk about somebody who is... Almost a combination of Septon Barth and his partner King Jaehaerys kind of mashed together. It was a mashup of, of historical characters to make a more modern character. Funny to hear about Maester Aemon, who I'm talking about as a modern character. Uh, old, Targaryen, wise, peaceful, extremely knowledgeable to the point that he also is kind of one of those oracle characters. I'd say that's a really good fit there. Now here's a quote. He spoke of dreams and never named the dreamer of a glass candle that could not be lit and eggs that would not hatch. He said the Sphinx was the riddle, not the riddler, whatever that meant. He asked Sam to read for him by a book by Septon Barth, whose writings had been burned during the reign of Baylor the Blessed, once he woke up weeping. Okay, so first, take note of the parallel there. Aemon wanted Sam to read to him Septon Barth's book on his deathwed, while King Jaehaerys quote, died peacefully in his bed in 103 AC, while Lady Alicent read to him from his friend Barth's unnatural history. So, we have Aemon wanting Sam to read from the book 
And we have King Jaehaerys also wanting for him, wanting his friend to read from Septon Barth's book, both on their deathbed. How cool is that? So, great parallel. But also, just the fact that Aemon is asking for this book on his deathbed is really interesting for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's yet another endorsement of Septon Barth's general quality. Because, hey, if Master Aemon is recommending something, come on, we all, we all will think twice about disagreeing with something that Maester Aemon says, right? But, on the other hand, we also have the confusion regarding uh, the, the dreams and why he would be asking for this book. He's never seen this book. He was, it was burned well before he was even born. Did he see it? Did he, does he have seen, has he seen a copy somehow? Maybe not all the copies were burned. We'll get to more on that later. Right now, I want to point out something that when I first read it, in A Feast for Crows, and I think a lot of you might have had the same thinking, that this seemed like something really interesting. This quote that I'm about to read seemed like it might be really important. But now that we know that it comes with Barth's endorsement, this quote becomes almost a bombshell. Check it out. It was a prince that was promised, not a princess. Rhaegar, I thought. The smoke was from the fire that devoured Summerhall on the day of his birth. The salt from the tears shed for those who died. He shared my belief when he was young, but later he became persuaded that it was his own son who fulfilled the prophecy. For a comet had been seen above King's Landing on the night Aegon was conceived, and Rhaegar was certain the bleeding star had to be a comet. What fools we were who thought ourselves so wise. The error crept in from the translation. Dragons are neither male nor female. Barth saw the truth of that. But now one and now the other, as changeable as flame. The language misled us all for a thousand years. Daenerys is the one born amidst salt and smoke. The dragons prove it. Smalt? Smalt and soak? I almost said that. Anyway, so this is another example of Barth being right in the face of so many other smart and knowledgeable figures who were saying the opposite or who dismissed it, including Aemon, who finally came around on his deathbed to realizing he had been wrong all this time. So he's... he's Maester Aemon is calling... Daenerys flat out calling her the princess that was promised. And when we when we first all read that many years ago or, or recently, depending on where you're at, we said to ourselves, oh, wow, Daenerys is the princess of promise. This is pretty strong evidence. It's almost not just strong evidence now. It's almost like flat out decided. We have the brightest, most accurate minds within the storyline saying this. It's almost not debatable anymore. Uh, I mean, we're going to keep debating it probably. But it just goes, this just goes so far towards proving it. So... Uh, it's almost like we've established really thoroughly that if Septon Barth has an opinion, it's the Trump. It trumps all the other opinions. But we've got more to go. Let's dive into the topic that Barth is most known for. The one with even perhaps even greater repercussions for the rest of the series. One where things are, pun intended, up in the air. And I'm talking about dragons. Not everyone wants to sign up to support us on Patreon. If you prefer to do things the old-fashioned way... Simply go to historyofwesteros.com and click on the donate button. You can select PayPal and uh, donate an amount that you feel is appropriate for the enjoyment that you receive from the show. And occasionally we do shout outs for people that request them. Uh, this time we have a shout out from longtime listener Anthony Gonzalez. Thanks, Anthony. You've been a, a great supporter for a long time. And new listener Jake the Fifth, who has a very cool name now, right? But also, there are people who deserve our thanks for helping in non-financial ways. Thanks to Rainey's Targaryen again for some suggestions for this episode, as well as always keeping me straight on the timeline. As well as thanks to friend Dan Koisman, who gave me some cool 
vaguely crackpot ideas to insert in this episode that I thought were really nice. So again, History of Westeros is a community effort, not just me and Ashea putting in the work. There's a lot of other people that get involved and make this possible. So thanks, everybody, for helping out. Part three, Septon Barth, Dragon Expert. As much as he deserves that massive Valyrian steel link I talked about earlier, you know, the one that causes back problems, Barth would also seem to deserve a, a dragon scale link on his chain, or maybe dragon bone. Um, and, you know, dragon bone has, supposedly has a really high iron content, so hey, that's a, that's a metal, right? Um, according to me, anyway. Dra- or maybe a dragon glass link. Uh, that, that, I don't know how you forge dragon glass link, but tell you what, Septon Barth, if he was a maester, he would have the coolest looking maester's chain. But he's not a maester. And it's weird, right? This is a guy, this guy who knows the most about dragons in the whole series is a Septon, a former blacksmith's son. That's, that just doesn't sound right. But in some ways, it's not weird at all. Like, think about it this way. He had ample opportunity to study dragons. He was hand of the king to the most prolific uh, king as far as having children. Well, maybe egg on the unworthy aside. But as far as legitimate children, true-born children, you can't top Jaehaerys and Alysanne. They had 13 children. Several of those children had dragons. And the king and queen both had famous dragons of their own. The bronze and tan Vermithor was uh, King Jaehaerys' mount. And one of the last to die ever as far as dragons, was Silverwing, which belonged to Queen Alysanne. Now, two of, right now in the series, two of Daenerys' dragons are riderless. So, of course, we've all heard and and discussed the three heads of the dragon concept and who are the other dragon riders going to be. And this might help shed a little light, maybe not on who the dragon riders will be, but on how they will tame the dragons, but also just this is a lot of knowledge on dragons in general and how they work. So, as far as living characters... Tyrion would be our pick for the guy who knows the most about dragons. Maybe Maester, maybe Archmaester Marwyn, but we just don't know enough about him yet. As far as characters we know, well, no doubt Tyrion is the most knowledgeable about dragons, as well as a lot of other things. <laughs> but, in fact, a lot of these quotes we, that I've read today are quotes by Tyrion referring to Barth. So, again, we have Aemon basically saying Barth is the man. We have Tyrion quoting him frequently. And you have us quoting him frequently, and you have George R. R. Martin saying all these great things about him. So, I do think we've built a strong case here. Especially with dragons, because Barth has delved really deep in the topic. Quote, In Septon Barth's Dragons, Worms, and Wyverns, he speculated that the blood mages of Valyria used wyvern stock to create dragons. Though the blood mages were alleged to have experimented mightily with their unnatural arts, this claim is considered far-fetched by most maesters. And Maester Vanyan's Against the Unnatural contains certain proofs of dragons having existed in Westeros even in the earliest of days, before Valyria rose to be a power. Well, this could be a spot he's wrong, but he's only speculating. He can't be too harsh on a guy who's only putting out theories and not saying this is definitely true. Still, I do think he's right, or at least there's a strong chance that he's right. Certainly I wouldn't be dismissive like the Maesters, who aren't, again, are really looking bad in this episode. Here's our best description of wyverns, which come, uh, wyverns who, who come from Sothorius in the first place. Most terrible of, our, of, of all are the wyverns, whose tyrants of the southern skies, with their great leathery wings, cruel beaks, and insatiable hunger. 
Close kin to dragons, wyverns cannot breathe fire, but they exceeded their cousins in ferocity and are a match for them in all other aspects save size. Most terrible of all? In that place? Sothorios. That's a scary place. So that's really saying something. But more on topic, quote, In the dungeons of Gorgossus, torturers devised new torments. In the flesh pits, blood sorcery of the darkest sort was practiced, as beasts were mated to slave women to bring forth twisted half-human children. So, that gives us at least some confirmation that the Valyrians did try to create new species. So it's not exactly far-fetched that they would try to merge two animals together in some way. Now, we've of course talked a lot about dragons and there's more to come. We just talked about wyverns, but there's the third animal mentioned here, and those are the worms. Here's a quote about worms. Fireworms. Some say they are akin to dragons, for worms breathe fire too. Instead of soaring through the sky, they bore through stone and soil. If the old tales can believe there were worms amongst the 14 flames even before the dragons came. So all the ingredients are there for this theory. Wyverns, which are like dragons, minus the fire breathing. And fireworms, which are like dragons without wings. Combine that with evidence of other species crossing and inbreeding and sorcery, which there's plenty of evidence of in Old Valyria. And, well, I think we've got something here. It's certainly not proven, but it's a workable theory. Dragons from wyverns is no, by no means a certainty, but... The Citadel is here calling it far-fetched, and I, I think we've proven already that that's a hasty uh, d- conclusion by the Citadel. Some claim dragons have existed since before Valyria was an empire, but that isn't certain either. That would throw off the theory if that were true, but there's more to it than that. Here's an example. Quote, dragon bones have been found as north, or as far north as Ib, and even in the jungles of Sothorios, but the Valyrians harnessed and subjugated them as no one could. So... It's possible Barth is wrong here. This is the closest we can get to him being wrong at this point. But he could be partially correct. He might be right about how dragons came to exist in the first place, the whole species crossing, but he might have just been wrong about who did it. He's, he's you know, guessing at Valyria, but maybe just an older civilization did it. Maybe the Ashai did it, or some elder race we have no name for. Or, you know, hey, maybe worms and, and wyverns just started humping on their own. <laughs> Probably not, but hey, that's it's funny, right? Um, so I gotta say that's a valid theory. It, it's no, it's no more than that, but no less than that either. Now, Barth didn't just put forth his own dragon theories; he collected others from around the world in an effort to unite the knowledge and maybe to find truth amongst the old stories. So here are some examples. Quote, the Valyrians themselves claimed that dragons sprang forth as the children of the 14 flames, while in Carth, the tales state that there was once a second moon in the day. Second moon in the sky, rather. One day this moon was scalded by the sun and cracked like an egg, and a million dragons poured forth. In Ashai, the tales are many and confused, but certain texts, all impossibly ancient, claim that dragons first came from the shadow, a place where all our learning fails us. These Ashai histories say that a people so ancient they had no name first tamed dragons in the shadow and brought them to Valyria, teaching the Valyrians their arts before departing from the annals. Yet if men in the shadow had tamed dragons first, why did they not conquer as the Valyrians did? It seemed likelier that the Valyrian tale is the truest. But there were dragons in Westeros once, long before the Targaryens came, as our own legends and histories tell us. If dragons did first spring from the 14 flames, they must have been spread across much of the known world before they were tamed. So after taming, you would think comes greater understanding. First you learn how to work with the animals, and over time you learn more and more about them. So after centuries of greater understanding comes the kind of knowledge that you can only get through some 
let's say, rough experiences. Quote, the eyes were where a dragon was most vulnerable. The eyes and the brain behind them. Not the underbelly, as certain old tales would have it. The scales there were just as tough as those along a dragon's back and flanks. And not down the gullet either. That was madness. These would-be dragon slayers might as well try to quench a fire with a spear thrust. Death comes out the dragon's mouth, Septon Barth had written in his Unnatural History, but death does not go in that way. Now, Meraxes was killed by a bolt to the eye, so there's proof right there. We've seen dragons die other ways, but they've been really extreme, like dragons killing other dragons, which is not something that a man man can really, you know, copy. Grappling hooks attached to large ships finding purchase under a dragon's scales, or the dragon pit collapsing on top of dragons, or mobs of peasants, you know, basically sacrificing themselves to kill much younger dragons. So it looks like Barth is onto something there as well. We, we don't really have any reason to challenge him on that one. Now, here's a compelling question. Before Barth's writings were destroyed, because that is what eventually happened to them, how did the other Targaryens after Barth view his writings? Did they trust it? Did they use it? For example, when Jacarius Valerian was trying to find dragon seeds to mount the wild dragons, was there anything he looked up in Septon Barth's books? Did he use that as a reference guide? Did he say, okay, well, this is going to work because we know this? Or was that knowledge passed down from before? Was it knowledge clarified by Barth? There's a lot of questions here that we can't answer. But just raising them just makes your head spin. It's really interesting to think about. Did he write on dragon taming at all? What about dragon's horns? What about dragon eggs? Did he have anything to say on hatching? I would think so, because he does talk about similar related subjects, such as this quote from Tyrion. When the half-maester appeared on deck, yawning, the dwarf was writing down what he recalled concerning the mating habits of dragons, on which subject Barth, Munkin, and Tomax held markedly divergent views. Well, I would say, Tyrion, ignore Munkin and Tomax. Just listen to Barth. That would make it easier, wouldn't it? Now, again, regarding Daenerys being the princess that was promised, we have this from the World of Ice and Fire. Quote, The belief that dragons could change sex at need is erroneous, according to Maester Anson's truth, roding, rather rooted in a misunderstanding of the esoteric metaphor that Barth preferred when discussing the higher mysteries. Erroneous, you say? Metaphor, you say? Not so fast there, Maesters. Maester Eamon just got through telling us about the prince versus princess that was promised concept, so we're not, we're gonna, we are going to continue believing that dragons can indeed change their sex at need, especially because that's a real thing that happens on Earth. We already have certain fish, amphibians, reptiles that can actually change sex. That's a real-world thing, so it's really easy to accept in a fantasy novel once you realize that it's not actually a fantasy thing. So, that is very straightforward. So, Barth, expert on dragons. Look at all that. We have reached our first Patreon milestone goal, which means we will have at least one episode per month from now on. So, I can say for a a certainty that Patreon is working. And to those of you who have supported us on there, thank you very much. And to the rest of you, well, you can thank the Patreon supporters as well for the increased frequency of History of Westeros episodes. I do think we'll get out a second episode this month, in fact. Uh, so we'll look forward to that. But in the meantime, even one month and epi- one episode a month is still leaves you with a lot of extra time, even if you listen to each History of Westeros episode two or three times. So if you're jonesing for more content, I highly recommend Radio Westeros. You can find them on iTunes, on YouTube, or at RadioWesteros.com.
Part 4. Blessed Baylor, book-burning bastard. Gotta throw a little alliteration in there from time to time, right? Now, when Septon Barth passed away in his sleep in 99 AC, the famed Kingsguard knight Sir Ryam Redwine was made hand. You know what they say, Valar Barth Gullis. He had an incredible run, and he managed to die in, in peace, in his sleep. That's a feat in Westeros, if you really think about it. Though maybe not so much of a feat during the time of Jaehaerys and Barth, because I said that is the best time to have lived. Probably more people died peacefully in their sleep than in any other era of Westerosi history. Period. The man who replaced him, Sir Ryan, was one of the worst hands ever, a sad contrast to Barth, who was probably the best ever. Sorry, Tywin fans. This complete reversal in talent was a harbinger of more to come, though, to be fair, Ryan was replaced relatively quickly. Less than 30 years later would come the Dance of the Dragons. There was no Septon Barth to negotiate a peace, and of course, his best friend, the king, a man of peace himself, was long gone too. Quote, Jaehaerys, the first of his name, known as the Conciliator, and the Old King, being the only Targaryen who lived such an advanced age, died peacefully in his bed at 103 AC. So, four years later than Barth, they were both dead. After their deaths, things really started to go downhill. The reign of King Viserys I was quite peaceful, so, relatively speaking, of course, but he began the pattern of Targaryen kings who leave a huge mess for their successor. So while his, his reign itself in a vacuum was pretty good, his foresight, his very severe lack of foresight, harmed future generations by laying the foundation for the Dance of the Dragons. I have a feeling that Jaehaerys and Barth would have seen this coming and would have done, taken steps to prevent it. But Viserys, as we saw, as, if you're familiar with him at all, you see that he was kind of a guy that liked to forget about problems rather than dealing with them. He, liked, he kind of ignored them. Uh, but on the topic of this leaving messes for their successors... A few examples, just going by the, the people who followed, we have Aegon II and Princess Rhaenyra, who were the claimants in, in the uh, Dance of the Dragons following Viserys I's death. Neither of them could be said to have left the realm in good shape. They tore it apart with their civil war. Aegon III took over afterwards, and, and he managed the chaos they gifted the realm with well enough. But he left the realm dragonless, which you know severely may not have been his fault, but people blamed him for it. So the perception is that it's his fault, and in a lot of ways, perception is reality. Now, the following king was Daron I, the young dragon, and he, of course, created a huge mess in Dorne. Now, his brother cleaned that mess up pretty well, but don't get excited because this is Baylor the Blessed we're talking about, and he managed to ruin quite a few other things. That's why we're calling him a book-burning bastard. And, of course, he left other messes besides the book burnings. Uh, the pattern of bad kings leaving messes, or maybe bad or decent kings leaving huge messes for their successor, continues after Baylor. But this is where we're going to stop because this is the guy we're most interested in at the point. At this point, the Septon king took the throne about sixty years after Barth's death and immediately committed his biggest crime. Quote. Baylor the Blessed had ordered all Barth's writings destroyed when he came to the Iron Throne. Ten years ago, Tyrion had read a fragment of unnatural history that had eluded the Blessed Baelor, but he doubted that any of Barth's work had found its way across the Narrow Sea. Well, here's to hoping Tyrion is wrong, that his pessimism is misplaced. And although we're blaming Baelor for this, the idea that Barth was a villain wasn't new. Even during his life, we have this quote, his enemies always claimed he was more sorcerer than Septon. The old trick of blaming a guy or accusing a really intelligent visionary thinker of being a sorcerer. That, we've, we've, we've heard of that. It's, it's the same burning women as witches because they show aptitude in math joke. That, that whole thing. It's really silly. 
just because someone's smart doesn't mean they're they're a sorcerer. But that that is a common thing we see in A Song of Ice and Fire. And it speaks a lot to why Septon Barth is, is mistrusted, because he speaks to the higher mysteries so much. And apparently this sentiment about him lingered, at least among some, no matter how unfair and inaccurate it was. Quote, Septon Barth's unnatural history, however mistaken some of its proposals, was the work of one of the brightest minds in the Seven Kingdoms. Barth's study and alleged practice of the higher arts proved enough to win Baylor's enmity, and the destruction of his work, even though the unnatural history contains much that is neither controversial nor wicked, it is only, un- it is only fortunate that fragments have survived so that the lore within was not wholly lost. Baylor reflects the worst aspects of religious dogma, destroying knowledge that threatened his belief system or that he found profane. Well, Baylor also tried to replace black ravens with white doves, expelled all the horrors from King's Landing, and imprisoned his own sisters. So his threshold for both critical thinking and judging things profane, well, he, he had a very narrow threshold for that. It was just very shallow. It, it didn't take much for Baylor to think of it as profane. Baylor also had other books burned. It wasn't just Barth, including the aforementioned Mushroom, his book, The Testimony of Mushroom. Uh, as it says, though, there are fragments out there. Barth himself is said to have consulted, quote, texts preserved, or rather, texts said to be preserved at Castle Black. Texts, eh? Preserved, eh? That's hopeful. Fingers crossed this comes up again. It's possible that these are some of the books Sam took with him to the Citadel. How cool would that be? We really hope so. It gives us a better chance of finding out what's in them. The Citadel could use a bit of a bit more knowledge in that area, to be honest. Uh, you know, we're thinking as critical as we've been of the Maesters in this episode. They do, they do need a little help in that area. Though, from the evidence we have also shown, the Maesters probably just wouldn't trust it. They probably just discard it, even though it's, from where I were sitting, it's, it's really accurate. Now... If we're really lucky, some of Barth's work either came with Sam or it remains at Castle Black. Fire destroys, but cold preserves. We hope that's literally true in this case. Uh, You know, it's really cold up at Castle Black. And I don't think it's a stretch to think that some people may have ignored the the crazy Septon King's order to burn all the copies of this book. Especially in the North, where worship of the Seven is is scarcer in the first place. Uh, Although, to be fair, it is more common at the Wall. So I guess a lot really just depends on who was in charge of the library at Castle Black and some of the other libraries around the North at the time when that order was given. It only takes one disobedient maester or scribe or just one guy who thinks who thinks it would be a huge crime to burn this book rather than obey the, the, the king's orders. It only takes one person disobeying that order for a copy of this book to be out there. But this is A Song of Ice and Fire, where great things do get destroyed. A lot of beautiful characters have been made ugly or, or, or killed in brutal ways. A lot of wonderful things have been torn down and destroyed. So it is a bit par for the course. So it also wouldn't be unrealistic for all those writings really to be gone for good. George has been very clear that he wants the inner workings of magic and the gods and all that to remain mysterious throughout his series, and Barth might be too insightful. Earlier we mentioned that Maester Eamon wanted Sam to read from Barth's book to him. Eamon was delirious and on his deathbed, but just as there was truth in, say, Hoster Tully's deathbed ramblings about Tansy, and John Aaron's dying insistence that the seed is strong, I don't think Eamon was asking for a book he had never seen before. 
he, after all, like I said before, he was born long after Baylor ordered these books burned. He, they weren't they weren't around in his lifetime that we know of. But he's still asking to have them read to him. That's just that's just a little strange. I think he may have actually seen some copies or had a, a hidden copy somewhere, or at least some fragments. Uh, something about that doesn't add up to me. Now, as much as he was in delirium, he was also figuring things out. I mean, this is the same this is the same guy that's just figured out these things about Daenerys and dragons and the princess that was promised. So, he's delirious, but he's also quite lucid and making great points. So, I think he just wanted to look back at Barth's work and, and see how these new revelations could be cross-referenced to see if he could find uh, confirmation among what Barth was saying. And we're pretty sure we know when Barth was at Castle Black, too. Remember the, the incident where King Jaehaerys and Queen Alysanne flew north to, with six dragons to visit the wall? This is the same time when the castle was renamed Queen's Crown and where the Night's Gate, uh, where Night's Gate was shut, Night Gate, rather, or Night Fort, jeez, the Night Fort was shut down uh, be, uh, because it was too costly to maintain and the Queen gave a bunch of jewels and the wall still loves Queen Alysanne to this day for that. In that incident, we're told that the king brought a, a large part of his court to the wall with him. And, of course, we have a reference to Septon Barth reading things at, Septon, at uh, Castle Black. So this seems to be having that time. I, I guess this would have been in the 60s or 70s AC. It could have been in the 80s. But in any case, sometime around then. So there's still a chance that Septon Barth left something there. He donated some books to their library or maybe wrote some notes in the margins of some books. We just hope that stuff gets discovered. And if not Castle Black, well, there are other possibilities. One, uh, My particular favorite, the one I think most worth mentioning, is in Volantis. The Volantines consider themselves heirs of the Freehold, and in Volantis there is a section of the city contained within what is known as the Black Wall. And the Black Wall is 200 feet high, made of that same fused black stone that in some places has been, in, in some ways that it's been used, it's been considered a, a wonder of the world by Lomas Longstrider. The Valyrian roads are made of this ancient fused black stone. And Lomas Longstrider calls that one of the wonders of the world. Dragonstone is made from the same fused blackstone. So the feature, however, isn't the wall itself that we're most interested in. We're interested in behind it. Quote, outlanders, foreigners, and freedmen were not allowed inside the black wall, save at the invitation of those who dwelt within. Scions of the old blood who could trace their ancestry back to Valyria itself. Well, who in the books has the best claim to old blood from the freehold of Valyria itself. Daenerys, quite clearly. So if she ever, if she makes her way through Volantis, and I think there's a good chance she will on her way west towards Westeros, it's certainly where a lot of other ships had to stop off to get supplies because it's right, you know, you have to sail around Valyria and then your kind of next stop is Volantis where you kind of resupply, get new water and food and all that. So it seems likely enough that she'll go there, especially since there's uh, evidence that there'll be some conflict between her and, uh, and them. So... The whole the way Volantis works, though, it kind of it kind of goes both ways. Maybe they recognize that Barth is a genius, that he kind of gets it. But on the other hand, these are really proud people, proud of their ancient lineage and their connections to old Valyria and the Freehold. They don't even let foreigners in their neighborhood. So you could easily see how they would look at Septon Barth's writings and say, what could this savage from Westeros know about ancient higher Valyrian mysteries? They could just look down on it. 
it could go both ways. There could be some of both in there. There could be some that think he's smart and that he gets it, and there could be some that just look down on him. We don't know which opinion holds sway there in Volantis, but regardless of the truth, even if they all kind of hate him there or think little of him, that doesn't mean there isn't a copy of his book somewhere in the, in, behind the black wall. So with all these helpful possibilities, we're optimistic that some more of Barth's work will appear during the remainder of the series. Surely there's some more to come remaining uh, re- regarding dragons and his expertise may be mentioned again on some other juicy topic. And you loyal listeners will be ready to understand while others may miss the significance. So maybe you'll become the trivia master of your group. You'll be like Tyrion, reading the, these divergent opinions of maesters on, on a topic where you don't know which maester is right. That'll be the difference between you and Tyrion. You'll know which maester to trust. Except it's not a maester, it's Septon Barth. His name is associated with other central mysteries, the biggest of all, perhaps. Quote, Such questions abound even to this day. Before the doom of Valyria, maesters and archmaesters oft traveled to the freehold in search of answers, but none were ever found. Septon Barth's claim that the Valyrians came to Westeros because their priests prophesied that the doom of man would come out of the land beyond the narrow sea can safely be dismissed as nonsense, as can many of Barth's queerer beliefs and suppositions. Nonsense, you say? Safely dismissed, you say, don't listen to the maesters. I think I've said that plenty in this episode, but especially now. Not only has Barth consistently been right, but they've been consistently wrong, especially about these higher mysteries. So the lesson, I think, is that maesters are a good resource, as long as you know where their weak spots are. And this is the big one. The the higher mysteries are the maesters' blind spots. Just don't ever listen to them on that topic. So, the doom of man, though. That that, That quote, what does that mean? I think it's pretty clear that... It's talking about the others and the potential return of the Long Night. The Long, the long Night is the doom of man there. We've seen that truth. We know that. So Barth is right again. But what's next? What does that mean? Is there any more? Does he have any more to say on this topic? Will Tyrion, despite this pessimism, or, or Danny, find some fragments or complete works in Essos somewhere? Will we see more of his writings on the others on dragons? Or how about Melisandre? What if Melisandre goes into the library at Castle Black and finds one of his books? She's so close to them, they're right there. <laughs> the number of possibilities, it's really uncountable. So if you see the, Sept- the name Septon Barth attached to a theory or factoid in the Winds of Winter or beyond, believe it. Even No matter who the POV character is, no matter what their opinion is, just believe Barth. Listen to Barth. Hashtag Barth is truth. Thanks for listening, everybody. Special thanks to those who make the show possible. These are, in essence, our producers and executive producers. Our Hand of the King is Lord Cash Craig, a.k.a. Vaxis, on the History of Westeros forums. Our Warden of the North is Lord Parker, the Bastard of Starkville. The Wardens of South, East, and West are currently open. We're undefended on three of our borders. The Master of Coin is Lord Robert Jacobs. The Master of Whisperers is Lord James the Scholar. Grand Maester Itai wears the jeweled collar of many medals. The History of Westeros Kingsguards commanded by Lord Commander Shepard. The History of Westeros' Night's Watch Lord Commander is nobody right now. Uh, the, the latest Patreon milestone, which is uh, we've just started to work towards, is improved production quality. We're going to be adding better sound, better camera, better lighting, things that cost money, but we're not just going to be a, make a one-time investment in these things. It's going to be a periodic reinvestment for, for production upgrades, new software, voice lessons possibly, public speaking classes, anything we can think of to make the show better, to improve the experience. See, I'm just counting things off without actually naming them. But there's a lot of things we can do to improve the show. I'm full of ideas. I can't list them all here. 
because it would take too long and I wouldn't think of them all. But I'm really excited for the future of the show and I hope you guys are excited as well because we keep growing and we keep reducing the time between episodes and I think we keep improving the quality. So until next time, everybody, Valar Barth Gullis and expect the next episode probably later this month, maybe early next month, continuing the Blackfire series coverage. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.